You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. It was June when Eugene Brentani took the job at Aronson and Son Moving Company and subleased an apartment in Inwood from a man on his crew named Alvaro. Like many of the men who worked at Aronson and Son, Alvaro had recently emigrated from the Dominican Republic. Unlike the others, however, Alvaro was from the Cibao Valley, a small rural region in the northern part of the country. Separated from the rest of the island by the Cordillera Septentrional mountain range, the isolated farming communities of the Cibao Valley had developed their own dialect. This dialect, Sibenio, was virtually incomprehensible to natives of the other Spanish-speaking countries in the Caribbean. Cubans thought that it sounded excessively affricative, like Catalan. Puerto Ricans found it soft and melodious, like Portuguese. Even the other Dominicans on the moving crew were baffled by Alvaro's speech. To Eugene, it sounded like Alvaro was speaking with a mouthful of porridge. Alvaro's attempts to learn English were, despite his most strenuous efforts, pitiful, but he was able to make himself understood in other ways. Since words failed him, he communicated through vivid intonation, forceful hand gestures, and dynamic facial expressions made with contortions of his rubbery face, the muscles of which were flexible to an uncanny degree. An arched lip or a wiggled ear was a disquisition in itself, conveying meaning far more articulate than, say, one of Eugene's father's monosyllabic lectures. After several weeks, no longer mattered that Alvaro couldn't speak a word of English. Eugene believed that he could understand him just fine. Nathaniel Rich is the editor of the Paris Review and the author of San Francisco Noir. His first novel is The Mayor's Tongue. Thank you for joining me, Nathaniel. Thanks a lot for having me. Alvaro asked Eugene to translate something, and it's a novel. And Eugene, what Eugene translates is this really wonderful story, and this is the first of many stories within stories, stories told by stories. This book is like a one of those, uh, it's almost like a, a the literary version of a pop-up book. Uh-huh. <laughs> you open up the pages, and there's 10 other stories that pop up at various different levels. What made you decide to, to take that tack as you were trying to tell the story? Well, I, I, my, at a certain phase, it, it was very chaotic, and the stories were just coming out of nowhere and right and left and diverging and, and so on. And, and then I, I, I cut them away and cut them away, and, and it reduced it to what I felt were the things that were really essential for this the book and and so I think there there is a, a continuity and and I think the stories function almost as metaphors often in the book for what's happening between the characters um, with Alvaro and Eugene Alvaro gives Eugene a manuscript written in this dialect Eugene is he asks Eugene to translate it um, and Eugene in translating it, it's forced to imagine what a autobiographical fiction by his friend might be about. And it's, it's, it's in the translation process, it's a way for him not only to communicate for Alvaro, but then also to Al- with Alvaro, but also a way to, in a sense, write about his own life. And, and, sh- and there, there are certain parallels between Alvaro's story and Eugene's story. And throughout the book, when, when there are little stories within stories, they're often in places where, or they're, they're always in places where there's an interaction between two characters and they reach a certain impasse because they're not, language fails them after a certain point. And it's really through telling a story that they're able to understand better what, what has brought them together or, or get through that impasse. 
You know, the phrase you just said, I think we, we need to get a T-shirt that says that language fails them <laughs> because I think that's one of the themes of this book. It's Yeah, it's for me, it's probably the central theme of the book is the you know, deep fail, the, the frailties and failures of, of language and, and the difficulty of communicating with another person. And, you know, which is something I'm constantly dealing with in my own conversations and being, being inarticulate and so on. But the... The, the frustrations of, of language and and yet the and the imperfections and yet the deep human desire to reach out to someone and and really communicate with them in an intimate way and I think throughout the book there are situations or relationships where two two people want to really want to you know reach a serious level of understanding within with one another and are, are thwarted and yet yet still have this desire so it's there's something tragic about it but there's also something optimistic I think about the you know, human will and, and what what we try to use language to do. Well, the the Eugene storyline is something that we might expect from a young man who's an editor of Paris Review. The the Rutherford and Schmitz, however, this is a very different storyline and not what we'd expect. Yeah, that was on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fun. Yeah, I like it. yeah. Well, I, I think the two stories... Uh, you know, I don't want to analyze my own book too much, but I think the two stories really uh, start from very different places, and they kind of cross at a certain point. And and yet, there's my hope was that there was a resonance between these two stories all along, and that they the, the main characters in each story go through similar crises, and they face similar problems, and I think come to different solutions, and and have different ways of of, of dealing with those problems. But I, yeah, it was important to me. I, you know, I was very aware when I was writing the book, and maybe as a literature student, of, of certain tropes and 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 cliches of, of you know first novel by a young guy, especially one living in New York or a place like that. And and I realized at a certain point I could not escape certain basic things, like one of the protagonists being a young man in New York, or at least starting there. And and so I. But it was important to me to not reduce it to something like that, but to include, but to have the story be much bigger than that. And and the Mr. Schmitz and Rutherford strand is very much a part of that. And I think it balances out that element, um, hopefully in a complementary way. One thing that strikes me about this whole book is there's this uh, a beautiful kind of uh, emotional feel all the way through. It's not overstated. I, I guess it's a, a wistfulness, a, a kind of joy, but a little bit of sadness uh, at the invented landscapes that that we're left with as as we experience life. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, there's there's I think a lot of uh, on Eugene's part, especially there's a lot of youthful energy and and exuberance, and at the same time, there are frustrations and 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 problems along the way that. That reduce that element too, and and I think the same with the old old men's story. There's you have the sort of sadnesses and and uh, some tragedies of, of old age, and yet there's also an excitement uh, about there's a kind of a youthful excitement to them too. So I, I felt like there should be a balance, and I wanted to to go for a kind of honest, you know, honestly complex emotional. Uh, resonance and 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 not reduce it to a kind of fairy tale or a tragedy, um, but I, I wanted to you know I think as much as there are some fantastical elements of the novel, I felt like the the characters 
are for me felt deep you know i tried to make them as deeply honest as possible and real and so that although the landscape um becomes more surreal in some ways by contrast the characters become more real they 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 really do seem like people you might meet or know and and almost like old friends that that worn worn leather shoes or something that you somebody you know so well that you can but uh one thing that that uh, of course that I really liked about this book was all the the metafictional elements. Immediately, your you introduce us to a writer, Constance Eakins, and so the first thing I'm doing is trying to look up and find out who Constance Eakins is. Okay, well he's fictional. <laughs> I get that pretty quickly. Um, but you have a lot of fun with w- with Eakins, and, and there's even an element of. Uh, 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 academic satire there. Your character, Eugene, has written a college paper about Eakins, and he gets a B. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, because he takes on more than he can chew. Because Eakins is a, just a monstrous, terrifying figure, and, and uh, he's not really any, he's not really a, modeled after any single writer, but something like a grotesque amalgamation of every great you know writer of, of the last century something like a Hemingway plus Faulkner plus JD Salinger plus Nabokov or anyone else he can name and I think he does I def he has characteristics of all of these writers he's reclusive he's monomaniacal he's a belligerent um, deeply uh, perverse a criminal maybe a murderer we don't know and and I felt like for the role he plays in the story, uh, he has to kind of haunt the rest of the story and yet can't totally be present, at least not until the end. And uh, he's somewhat, something like of an Oz, Oz-like character for me. I, I like that Oz. That's that's a really good way. Yeah, he's the wizard behind the curtain. And, and not only uh, is he based, I'm guessing, on uh, writers, but also on film directors. I'm well, thinking of one, very, one particularly man. Very studi- yeah, Orson Welles is there. Maybe uh-huh. you're thinking of someone. Well, else. I was thinking of Werner Herzog. Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm obsessed with Herzog, so yes, he's he's yes, definitely there too. I mean, I think I remember actually watching uh Les Blank's uh, Burden of Dreams, San Francisco filmmaker. Uh while I was writing the book at one point and seeing Herzog's monologue about the jungle. Uh and, oh, and man. Just, <laughs> terrifying, and he, he just gives this incredible. Mo- I urge anybody to rent that film, um, and it's, it's about the making of of a Herzog film, and and Fitzcarraldo, just, Fitzcarraldo yeah, yeah. They're, they're stuck in the jungle, and and they, everything on the set goes wrong, and Herzog is acting like a maniac, and Klaus Kinski, the actor, is acting like a maniac criminal, and uh, he delivers this monologue about being in the jungle and the raw, violent force of nature. And it's very negative and dark and hilarious, and and it's totally an Eakins-like uh, moment. Or I tried something I tried to to impart into Eakins. Eakins himself lives in in something like an equivalent of the of the jungle, um, but you know, at a remove from society. He's he's sort of outside the natural world, and yet has all the violence of the natural world in him. We we also meet a, 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 an interesting family, uh, Abe Chisholm, and he's doing. Eakin's biographer, and he ha- has a daughter who has a variety of names. Yes, well, she's she. Uh, everyone has a different name for her, and the, they're all generally versions of Allison or Alice, or she's also Sonia and so on. And and that you know that that was 
uh, important to me that she she had that quality that she's she's sort of someone else to everybody who looks at her and although she's a very I think strong character in her own right she's often being um, sort of misperceived or or her identity shifts depending on who's uh, you know who sees her and and uh, and then the biographer himself is is uh, for me it was something like a Dickensian figure of this guy who's been writing a biography for ages and ages and ages of this writer and yet hasn't come to a conclusion, to an ending, claims to correspond with Constance Eakins, even though Eakins is presumed dead. And it's unclear to what degree he's either um, just a slow worker or completely senile and, and batty. Uh, and we have a lot of uh, letters in this in this novel that, that turn out to be works of fiction or maybe works of fiction or imitations of fiction. I'm wondering what your experience is with correspondence. As a, did you... Were you a pro- prolific letter writer? Um, I love receiving letters, and I, I like writing letters. I, I wish I'd, I had written and received more. Um, but uh, letters, for me, it, it was important because it was, a, it was a way to demonstrate, you know, through the medium, through, through writing, certain changes that were going on in the characters, and you get a first-person perspective, uh, which uh, you don't, you know, the book is otherwise written in the third person. So they also seem to punctuate the the action in an, in an interesting way to me, and uh, and they do play a very significant uh, role in the in the in the old men uh, sections uh, because once Rutherford is sent to Italy, their only his only mode of communication with Mr. Schmidt is through the letters. So to dramatize the changes that Rutherford undergoes while he's in Italy, it has had to be done through through writing and through these letters. Let's talk a little bit about Italy. When did you go there? Why did you go there? And what happened to you when you were there? <laughs> I don't know. Something irrevocable <laughs> and strange. Uh, I went. I became obsessed with Italy at the beginning of college, and I, I started taking Italian then. And I went every summer uh, in college, and I think I just became fascinated with the films, the culture, the, the literature, and I ended up writing my senior thesis on the Italian writer Italo Svevo, who was from uh, Trieste, and I went to Trieste, and and really more than anything, that trip was the inspiration for the the whole book, and that was the my last summer of college, and I spent two weeks there in complete isolation. That was probably another thing. I, it was the first time I'd really been isolated, uh, and and had no communication with anyone, and especially and not in English. So I think I went a little crazy myself and began talking to myself. But it fascinated me because it's 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 so outside of what we know as Italy. And, you know, our view or, you know, my view at least of for, as an American of Italy is this kind of tourist paradise and, you know, Bella Vita and the good life and so on. And they, and in Trieste, Trieste most Italians don't even know that it's part of Italy. I, when I was there, I remember there was a poll that said 60% of Italians didn't think it was part of Italy and it hadn't been until the 50s and it for a while was an independent state and over um, the centuries it's been an important port but for different empires from the Romans through the Byzantine Empire through the Austro-Hungarians so it's it has this very strange identity that's between the east and the west and between Italy and Germany and Slovenia and they speak a dialect that nobody else in Italy can understand and it has a, and because it's it's no longer an important port, uh, it's it has a kind of faded faded beauty to it, and and 
it's kind of fallen out of you know it's like an old like woman's hat you find in an attic somewhere no one really uh knows about it or it's sort of beautiful but no one wants to actually put it on their head <laughs> so it's 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 a very strange place and and it, but it's also that you know where James Joyce wrote m- much of his books and where Sveva lived and the the mix of different languages and different cultures and my failure to communicate with anybody there i think were all all important for the writing of the book let's talk a little bit about the the writers who haunt this book the the real writers not not the 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 invented writers well, we can get, we'll get to them next <laughs> um there's such a a variety of delightful writers and, and you mentioned italo svevo who's one of my favorites and he's uh, i think underappreciated in america yeah i think so i mean he's a uh... He's a fascinating writer. He wrote a, a masterpiece called, uh, it's translated as Zeno's Conscience, and it was published in the 20s. And, and his story was that he wrote two novels as a young man. He changed, his real name was Ettore Schmitz. He changed his name to Italo Svevo, which means basically Italian Swabian. And, and his family was both Italian and Swabian from Germany. So he he spoke the dialect, had a very weak command of Italian, really, which is one of the reasons why. I first was attracted to him because he he wrote a very simple Italian because it wasn't really his language, so I could read it much much more easily as as a as a new Italian speaker. But he wrote two novels as a young man. They nothing really happened with him. No one paid attention. He gave up. He married a very wealthy uh, heiress of a uh, painting company, uh, or shipping paint shipping company, and went into that trade. And at one point, when in his fifties, late fifties, he. The business took him to, he had to do, take regular trips to England, so he had to hire a, a British teacher, uh, someone to teach him English. And, and he hired a young man from the Berlitz Academy, local Berlitz Academy, and they were doing the lessons. And, and the young writer, the young teacher found out that Svevo had written these novels as a young man and, and encouraged him to write more. And, it, and Svevo was, was you know, very flattered, and, and it turned out that this young English teacher was James Joyce. And James Joyce's uh, book then came out, uh, Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, and Svevo was emboldened to write his third novel, which after 45 years of, of not writing, and he wrote this masterpiece that to me is, is the Italian masterpiece of the 20th century. It's very much about uh, life in a, in a cosmopolitan city. It's about, it starts with a hilarious just riff on trying to quit smoking, which I think is the best thing that's ever been written about smoking addiction. And... It's in some ways it's it's a lot about the way the world changed after World War One. Although that never really he never really talks about that. It, it's it seeps in through the through the sort of corners through the margins and and I and you sort of don't really get that until the end. But it's basically about being uprooted in cosmopolitan life and being confused and it's deeply funny and and sort of strange and it has an interesting structure and uh, you know compulsively readable. And, and I recommend it to everyone. Well, uh, I would highly agree. <laughs> and, and now, there's some other writers that that I think play a part in here. Eugenio Montale. Montale is a, a Trieste writer, and uh, he's an Italian uh, critic. And he, um, I suppose, Eugene might be from his name. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> I, I now forget somebody. Mr. Schmitz is is named after Svevo, is a, a real name, which was a Torres Schmitz, and. Uh, Montale is a writer I admire a lot and wrote about Svevo and, and was, I think, one of Svevo's big champions um, among the Italian critics. And, and, of course, we have Ernest Hemingway. 
Hemingway's in there, uh, I think, through the Eakins character, and it's less Hemingway's writing, and it's more his persona, I think, right. kind of, and, you know, Norman Mailer, that kind of tough, macho uh, writer persona that is somewhat, uh, you know, it's, so it's pretty comical, I think, now to, to people, to, to readers, because it, it feels like it really belongs to another era at this point, but, but Eakins himself uh, belonged to that era, so I thought it was important that he, he had all the, those qualities. Uh, we have also a riff on Poe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, um, a, a Mask of the Red Death scene, if I <laughs> if I seem to probably remember. true. I, I, I Poe is Poe is a big influence for me as well, and and uh, I think you know what's great about Poe and what's great about a horror, you know, the great horror writers, and I think Stephen King has this too. Is they have a terrific sense of humor, and and for me, you know, horror and comedy. Are basically two sides of the same coin, and I think you know both both require some element of of shock and surprise, and either the person either responds by laughing because they're so horrified, or they are so surprised, or they're terrified. And I think uh, that that kind of pivot is very important to, especially the character of Eakins, who is sort of a comical figure but also horrifying. And, and Eugene responds to those qualities of him, but in both ways. We've talked a little bit about the elements of the fantastic in this book, and I think you do quite a, a wonderful job of creating gritty, everyday, realistic characters and then having these things slip into their lives just by virtue of their perceptions that are that are fantastic and strange. But you have a, a there's a word, sencute? Oh yeah, the cinch. Yeah, I don't really know how to pronounce it. Cinch. It's it's a Triestine. It's a word from Triestine dialect, which sounds nothing like Italian, by the way, and it's full of letters that don't even appear in the Italian language, um, like J, for instance, and uh, and combinations of letters. It's that is the name of a kind of demon that that lives on in the in the mountainside in this very strange region outside of Trieste in the hills. That's really on the border of Slovenia. And there, it is such a. Th- it's sort of like Sibanyo. There is such a thing. There is such a belief in this kind of demon. Um, but I, I think I probably took some liberties with with the actual folklore and, and in the book. But in the in the in the novel, um, the the children in Trieste are told by their parents that there are these devils up, little devil children up in the in the hills, and that if you know they don't go to bed or if they go outside during the windy season, they'll be uh, taken by these these demons and. And so, that it ends up becoming significant uh, in different ways in the book. But I don't want to give away too much. Uh, nor do I. Now, one of the you create this region, and I and I've actually I looked 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 it up. It, it really is a region. You call it the Carso. I think uh, from that's the, I believe the from the Italian approach. It's right at the border of it. it Italy and, and Slovenia, right? And, and I think from coming from Slovenia, it's the cross. Yeah, and and it's it's a kind. Of, for me, it was a very mythical landscape because everything that was fascinating to me about Trieste, the kind of mix of cultures and languages, and identity, is kind of magnified in the mountains because once you get up there, you don't really know where the border is, and you don't. It's it's a real borderland, and and I felt like for me, it was a real border between. Uh, not just between Italy and Slovenia and to some extent Austria, but also um, between sort of re- reality and a kind of fictional world. And uh, I, went, I went there when I was in Trieste once and, and 
there are lots of little towns and the signs, every sign is in a different language. And there are lots of little vineyards and, and farms up there. Um, and a, a folklore and kind of local ritual. And the, the, the places are very cut off from the rest of Italy and from the rest of the world, really. And it's the kind of place that you, you don't, you know, there aren't really guidebooks about it. And, and the idea of a part of Italy, this corner of Italy, that was so removed from the, you know, Rome or, or our, the Italy of our American's imagination was fascinating to me. And it, it seemed like the kind of place where anything could happen. And you actually make a reference. You talk in there about there being places in this world right in the middle of where we think we know that we actually don't know. I think it's a really fascinating observation. Yeah, well, that was one of the actually that 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 idea was was really one of the first ideas that I had when I was working on the book. I I, I really there was sort of a, a group of ideas that kind of jigsawed together, and one was the idea of places that no one has ever been to just because we assume that people have been there, you know, and there, there are places like that in the world. I mean, there aren't many, but, uh, you know, there are, I, I mean, I, I remember a friend, I saw a friend uh, recently who over the summer worked for some kind of geological expedition in northern Canada. They were a student in Victoria, the university, and he went up with his professor in the summer, and they would be airlifted by helicopter into the into the mountains up there. And wherever they were dropped down to do research on whatever they were researching, local uh, species and so on, they were the first, they were certain they were the first humans who had ever been in that land. And and it's not, you know, no one would ever really think of wandering in that area in northern Canada, but it, it's so, there are places like that that still have a, a kind of untouched quality. And, and that was an idea that, that was really uh, fascinating with me and, and seemed to resonate with a lot of the other ideas in the book. And you have a, a lot of fun, and it's a difficult task when you're a writer creating a fictional writer. Yeah, I felt I felt you know I, I I'm very myself um, when I'm reading other books when there are writer characters I I'm always wincing a little bit you know because uh, there's something you, you know you read a book you want to for me you want it to be kind of escaping from. The world and writers writing about writers, you can get in a lot of traps that way. But so I felt I, I did want to, I did need to have this character. So I, I felt I had to make him as crazy and, and maniacal and strange as possible. I, I couldn't have just a, you know, I couldn't do what, what Philip, you know, Philip Roth does so wonderfully was to have a kind of authorial stand in, you know, a writer writing about a writer who's like the writer. I, I if I, I knew I couldn't, I wasn't up to that. So I needed, uh, I needed this this character to be totally terrified. One of the things that that interests me is the many ways that you kind of weave in very subtly um, ideas that come from the the edges of the fantastic. There's a there's a theme of consumption in here of just excessive consumption and eating, and that's uh, often a, a an aspect of of fairy lore that you'll go and if you eat the fairy cake, mm-hmm. that's it. You're you're out of this time stream. Uh, th- yeah, that's. A, I mean, it's a great observation. It's definitely something I I thought a lot about. And there's a kind of it's eating as a metaphor, as a kind of metaphor for experience, gaining experience through eating and devouring. And there's a there's a real hunger that a lot of the characters have. Eakins is one of them, but I think Eugene has it too. And and Rutherford has it, um, and Mr. Schmidt sort of develops it. And it, for me, it's really about a hunger for life and a hunger for 
experience. And that, that's at the heart of the motivations of, of a number of characters. Maybe you could say all of the characters in the book is that they, they really want to live and that this is a kind of sensual, uh, physical manifestation of that, just uh, excessive eating. And Eakins eats like a, a real devil. <laughs> also, there's a, an element of from one of my favorite myths, um, uh, the, where, of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In lots of Blessed Virgin Mary apparitions and presentations, um, people will be able to run faster than they should be able to. And, and there's a scene like that. I'm wondering, did you did you think about any of the, the many Blessed Virgin Mary apparitions in places in Italy? Well, there, not specifically, but I mean, there there is, you know, major uh, you know religious religious life in Italy is is very strong, and and the, and the religious um, sort of myth or folklore, especially in in certain regions, are really alive today as as uh, as they were in the medieval ages, and I think there, I had that in mind a little bit when I was writing about rural parts of Italy. Um, and and for me, a lot of of that those qualities are, for me, are things that you encounter when you leave the city. And 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 a lot of uh, you know when 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 Eugene leaves from New York, but also leaves from Trieste and goes up into the Carso, I think you leave the kind of rational, uh, almost you know business world of a city, cosmopolitan world, and you go into the unknown. And part of the unknown is myth and a kind of spiritual. Uh, ether and 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 I think that's part of it. Though it's not not specifically religious, but there I think there's a kind of uh, spiritual quality there. I want to return to this kind of something I talked about earlier: the the states of consciousness. You have so many uh, different ways of, of talking about that. Um, uh, Rutherford, I think it's Rutherford, develops a, a nausea of the brain. Uh, yes, Sartre. <laughs> All I could think of that by by my. One of my favorite <laughs> books I read in college was not uh, was uh, Sartre's Nausea. Well, part of yeah, and part of what's happening in that scene is he's he's losing his capabilities to speak English very well, and so nausea it's a kind of bad translation of what the Italian might be of kind of a headache, um, and uh, he uh, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as to say I was trying to, <laughs> to evoke Sartre, but uh, um, there there are certainly many nauseas of of brains and, and other organs throughout the the book, probably. And the loss of language too, aphasia. You say, and also one of my favorite lines: sleeplessness is a fine quality to possess. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, in the fictional world, no one ever sleeps; they're always doing stuff. So, uh, I like the idea of of characters sort of taking that for granted or not taking that for granted and and the damaging qualities of sleep because i mean this this is connected to the eating where it's you know when you're sleeping you're not living you're not experiencing life you're not you know devouring life and so sleep sleep uh being sleepy is is just the worst because you're you're just stuck in one place and you can't do anything are you working on a new book um i am and i've uh tentatively and hopefully it won't take you know five or six or seven years like this one um but uh all i can say i've already spoken much more about it than i ever did about the first book but uh it's has a working title of future world which is one word and it also starts in a city in new york and goes out into a, a countryside 
and but it's focused on on two characters primarily and i think in in some ways it's uh and then there's an apocalyptic crazy event also so there there's some similarities but in some ways it's sort of a, in my mind it's some more um the dimensions aren't quite as large as in, in the mayor's tongue it, is it science fiction? It sounds like it is. I, I mean, don't know. I, I guess I don't know how you. Yeah. Well, I don't know how. You, it's hard to define. I guess I don't think of it in terms of of genre like that. But mm-hmm. I, it's it's unlike. It's not like a, a Michael Bay movie. You know, it's not. <laughs> it's not about the. It, it's sort of. I think a better. You know, what I have more in mind is something like a. a you know what Dondolo did in White Noise, where there's this crazy apocalyptic event, but it's not the main. Event, you know, it, it's not the white noise itself is not the main. Uh, the, the story is really about the characters, and 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 for this story, the set, there's a drama, but there's a conflict, it's a crisis between the characters that they have to deal with, to put it in the most prosaic terms. And and the other stuff is sort of outside of it. It shapes what they do, but it's it's not. Um, it's like not about a meteor crashing to Earth, you know. Something like that. Well, uh, it sounds like there'll be some more delightful elements of the fantastic. I hope so. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think it's important for me never, it's important, especially with Mare's Tongue, I didn't want it to be, you know, it's not a fantasy book. It's not a a fan, but there are some fantastic elements. And it's important to me that it's, it's a very gradual um, shift and that you're never presented with some kind of hobgoblin jumping out from behind a wood, you know, but it's um, a kind of a, a, a gradual shift into a sort of deeper, deeper level of strangeness but never so dramatic that you're, uh, you know, disoriented. And I think uh, those are the kinds of fictions and that, that most fascinate me, both in literature and in film. We'll look forward to your next book. We've been speaking with Nathaniel Rich. His new novel is The Mayor's Tongue. Thank you for joining me, Nathaniel. Thank you very much for having me here. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.